today. 1 Corinthians 11, a people of worship. That is what we're looking at. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I have mixed feelings about you looking at it on your phone because like me, I'm sure when I, I'm looking at my Bible, I'm like, oh, I have some texts. I've got to look at some other things. So I am old school. I actually bring my Bible. I encourage some of you to do that. And we are digging into this letter. We've been seeing that this letter, we want to understand it in its historical context. First and foremost, what was Paul saying to that particular church? What was the Holy Spirit, what instruction was the Lord bringing to that particular church? And we're seeing in these various chapters, we're at chapter 11, and we're actually going to finish before Advent, that Paul has been talking about being a people of the cross, a people of apostolic power and weakness, a people of the Holy Spirit, a people of purity. And so we want to see this chapter here in view of the other chapters. We're going to look at a people of worship. And to give a little context here, in 1 Corinthians 10, which we didn't talk about because it was repeating some of the themes about uh, meat sacrifice to idols and using your freedom properly. But at the end of chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says this, and it kind of sets the stage for what we're going to look at today. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And so he's reiterating what he had said back in chapter 6, glorify God in your bodies. And now he's saying it again in chapter 10, Glorify God in all that you do. If you look at verse 1, 11, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, so as I am of Christ. So what Paul is going to do in this passage is talk about being a people of worship, a people of the right kind of worship, because they were surrounded by pagan worship. But Paul is going to say, as a people of worship, let me give you some practical instruction. Now, oftentimes, this passage is what I call cherry-picked. It's taken out of context, and it's sound-bited like crazy. And so what I am inviting us to do today is to humble ourselves before Scripture. You might say, well, we always do that. But I'm saying especially this morning, especially today, before this difficult text Let's humble ourselves and let the Word of God work in us and shape us and transform our minds and purify our hearts because you know what? We really don't know that much. I spent a week in a rabbit hole this week studying this and looking at the whole range of theologians' ideas on 1 Corinthians 11. And you know what their conclusion was in the end? We don't really know exactly what Paul was addressing here. Paul was primarily addressing women who weren't wearing a head covering. And that's the main thing. So he's giving them instruction on what true worship is. But what oftentimes happens is we take 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, and we look at it alone outside of the broader context. Because from 17 to 34, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. So we want to look at both of these together men and women in worship, and the Lord's Supper together because that's how Paul did it. Why is it that we isolate one or the other? Today we're going to look at them together and then we're actually going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So I want to take a few minutes and look at some of the key moments in 1 to 16 and 17 through 34. 
Amanda and I were talking this week about this, and I said, well, babe, we've uh, covered some pretty easy passages so far, so why not jump right in and do another really easy passage? This has been pretty humbling. In chapter 5, if you remember, uh, we looked at incest in the church. Chapter 6, we looked at temple prostitution and homosexuality. Chapter 7, marriage, sex, divorce, and singleness. And here we are again, friends. Another challenging passage. Some might be tempted to skirt around it, right? Isn't that the easier thing to do? Is like, let's kind of thumb ahead and move to chapter 12 and talk about spiritual gifts. But at our Lord's, we're committed to working through the scriptures and doing it transparently before God, humbly, and saying, Lord, speak to us, change us. We humble ourselves, we, give, we relinquish our theological systems, our ideas, and we want you to shape us and mold us. Amen? So that's where I've been this week, and I want us to approach this text that way. Before we look at it, I just want to say I'm really grateful that we're in this together. <laughs> right? We are in this together. I'm also grateful that in my last 20 years that I've had the experience of being in different theological spheres. So I studied at Trinity Evangelical with Wayne Grudem, and I was actually in his class on biblical manhood and womanhood. And he's the complementarian of all complementarian theologians. So I got to study with him. I love Wayne. I learned a lot from him. I also went to Loyola University, a liberal Catholic school, a Jesuit school, and I got to study there with egalitarians and feminists. And so I've had uh, opportunity to learn from different people about how to interpret passages like this. And I tell you what, I want to humble myself. I don't know much. I really don't. The more that I read about this, I say, Lord, I want your heart, your perspective. And I want to make a comment here, a pastoral comment. If you look around this room, some of you know each other pretty well. Some of you are getting to know each other. We have the whole spectrum of how to approach a passage like this, don't we? If you're new here, I'm just going to say this right now. We have complementarians who've been complementarians for decades, and we worship together. And we have egalitarians, kind of centrists, and we have some feminists here. And you know what? This is a prophetic statement to the church in our region that we can worship together. Amen? Now, I will also say this is not a creedal issue. If you read the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, you're not going to find them focusing on 1 Corinthians 11, this issue. So we want to make sure, church, that we are focused on the main and the plain, the gospel, the life death, resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the second coming, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that is the gospel. And we are all unified around that, are we not? So when it comes to things like this, unfortunately, this can divide the church. That's not going to be our approach. We're going to read a text like this and say we are absolutely unified on the truths of the gospel. And then there are other things that we're working out together as a family. Amen? So, I uh, spent some time this week with different theologians from different camps because I want to have various interpretive voices speaking to this, and it's part of me learning from other people, 
right? And revisiting 1 Corinthians 11. One particular person that was helpful is a scholar that I've referenced, N.T. Wright. And he is an Anglican evangelical theologian. And his writing has been really helpful in this. So I'll be referencing him. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to read 1 to 5, and then we're going to read 10 through 16. And because this chapter has 34 verses, we can't read the whole thing. I would love to. So this afternoon, you can go home before you take a nap and read the whole thing, right? So what I want to do is lay out some preliminary ideas and call us to unity around the Lord's table. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. We humble ourselves before this text, before you, Lord Jesus, the Lord of the church. We ask you to speak to us. In your name, amen. So 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 5, and then 10 through 16. And I'll make some comments, and then we'll shift gears and look at the Lord's Supper. So Paul says at verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions that I handed on to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband is the head of the wife and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. Then down at verse 10. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through the woman. But all things come from God. I'm going to stop there, actually. Again, I am opening this up for you to look at afresh. There is no way. It would take several weeks to look at all the facets of this. But Paul, as I mentioned, is addressing men and women, their relationship to one another in verses 1 through 16. And then he's going to look at the Lord's Supper. So we do not know exactly what Paul was addressing here. Think about it. This is 2,000 years ago. And we can do our best historical work archaeological work to try to figure out even what a a veil looked like back then. What was the head covering? And so all of the great theologians will humble themselves before this and say, "We, we don't know exactly what Paul was addressing. So we're left with some educated guesswork. And I think this is the most compelling thing here, that Paul is addressing not only theological, but social and cultural issues of his day. And part of that was gender. And that gender in the first century, in the 50s, 51 AD, Paul was addressing some of the hair and clothing styles. And Paul was acknowledging that there was social pressure to maintain these distinctions. And Paul had taught something. Those of you that have read the book of Galatians, Galatians 3.28, he said something, and he said that in Christ all are one. There is neither male nor female, nor slave nor free. And so some theologians surmise, all right, are you with me? That what may have been happening in Corinth is that some of the people, some of the women in particular, had been influenced by Paul's teaching, 
and they said, we're going to do away with our head coverings. And Paul is saying, please don't. Don't do that. Yes, you are free in Christ. You are free. But he's been talking to him in the whole letter about using your Christian freedom wisely. And so this is a big perhaps. Perhaps this is one of the, if you look at verse 2 here, he talks about the traditions that he's been handing on to them. And so perhaps Paul has handed on the tradition of Galatians 3.28. They're exposed to that teaching that there's neither male nor female, but you're one in Christ and both filled with the Holy Spirit. And maybe they're taking that to some extremes that Paul does not endorse. So what does he do here? He is addressing this and he references Genesis 2, Genesis 1 and 2, which we'll look at in just a moment. But I want us to have a little bit of cultural picture here, okay? Um, We don't know what that veil was like, but we do know that in the first century that women would braid their hair, and we know this because of looking at artwork. Just think about it. We can't pull up portraits like we can from the, the medieval times or something like that. We have to go back and look at ancient pottery, and you can study the pottery and see how some of the Greco-Roman women adorned themselves. In many of the images, they would have braided hair, and they would have it tucked up behind the head, and sometimes they would have something that looked like a headscarf. That is the only way that we can know what was going on in a passage like this. And apparently some of the women were taking off their headscarf and some of them maybe even unbraiding their hair. But church, that's really about all we know. So Paul is going to delve into this a little bit. And he's saying this for various reasons. One reason Paul is saying, in addition to the biblical reasons he's going to give in a minute, is think about this. I've mentioned in Corinth, there was a massive temple overlooking the whole city, the temple of Aphrodite, which we say Aphrodite, same thing. And there were temple prostitutes that went out every evening walking around town to raise money for the temple through their prostitution. And What do we know from historical research? They had their hair down, and they weren't veiled. And so it was communicating availability. I'm available. And so what Paul is saying in this context here is you need to have your hair up, and you need to have this head covering. Otherwise, there will be great misunderstanding. It would be like today, again, trying to get inside the mind of this is difficult. It would be like... Folks showing up, women showing up in their bathing suits to church. How do you think that would go? Not well, right? So it is that stark what Paul is addressing here. So I don't want to over-risk and try to over-explain what Paul is doing here because there is great mystery. And so what I want to do is look at some of the things in verse 3. We may not like the implications of what he's saying here, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. And does this contradict Galatians 3.28? You know, some people might say that it does, 
But I think this is important why we read all of Paul's letters alongside one another, right? It's important to read the Bible holistically and canonically. Maybe these, these women at Corinth were reading Galatians 3.28 and forgetting some of the other things. Look at verse 3, this word head in Greek is kephale. Say that, say kephale, kephale. And it's used literally, Paul's talking about the head, but he's also using it metaphorically, isn't he? So he's going to talk about God being the head of Christ. Again, great theological debate around this. I am convinced that what Paul is talking about here when he uses this is a sense of source. So God is the head of Christ. And human beings, man, woman is taken from man. So what Paul is doing here, the overall point seems to be this. Can I read you a quote from N.T. Wright? In worship, listen to this. It's a few lines here. In worship, it is important for both women and men to be their truly created selves, to honor God by being what they are and not blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. One of the unspoken clues to this very passage may be Paul's assumption that in worship, the creation is being restored. You hear that? Or perhaps that in worship, we are anticipating its eventual restoration. So what Paul is doing, he's situating all of this in the context of worship. Men and women coming together in the presence of God. And it's signaling new creation is coming. And for some reason, we take it out of that context. But Paul is reminding us this morning that that's the context that it's in. And then he's referencing Genesis 1:26, and I want to read N.T. Wright again. He says, if humans are to reclaim the authority that's given to man and woman in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, this will come about as they worship the true God, as they pray and prophesy in God's name, and as they are renewed in God's image in being what they were made to be, in celebrating the gender that God has given them. So are you with me so far? What Paul is saying here, he's pointing back to this text in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and he's saying man and woman are both created in the image of God. And he's reminding the church that the source from which woman came was man, man's side, and I'm not going to unpack all of that. This is a first century argument that we're looking at here. Paul goes on to say that the woman's hair is also another. He's, he's pointed at scripture, but he's also saying, hey, women, bear with me here. If you look at the natural order, you see that your hair provides a natural hair covering. And so he's arguing theologically, he's arguing for them to cover their hair based on what this text says and what nature itself indicates. Some of us don't have to worry about this because we have no hair, right? So this is not an issue at all. But Paul's point seems to be this, that in worship, 
Men were to follow the hair and dress codes that demonstrated they were male, and women were to follow the codes that demonstrated they were female. Not that this is relevant. My goodness, where all of this is being blurred right now, and there's a push for androgynous presentation of male and female and the blurring of the lines, a text like this actually speaks prophetically right into our cultural moment. Be a woman. Be a man. Bear the image of God. Worship God together. Partner together and be reestablished as God's kingdom agents together. So it's a powerful word here. Now, there's something very cryptic here. And again, all I'm trying to do is address a few things. I feel your support, right? You're looking at me going, wow, I would not want to be doing that. (laughs) Paul says something that is also very difficult to know exactly what he meant. And look at verse 10. Paul is laying this out, various arguments to get women and men to rediscover that they're made in the image of God. They're called to cooperate, participate in the restoration of creation together. And he mentions that a woman, look at verse 10, must have authority on her head because of the angels. I think sometimes we take for granted what that means. Can I share a few theories on what this means? I find it intriguing. One theory on what this is, is that The angels are human messengers in the church. Some of you would say, well, where's that in the Bible? In Revelation 1 through 3, the word angel is actually used for the messenger that's in various churches. So it can actually be a literal person who would perhaps be there observing the service that's going on. So it's not an angel. It's a a physical person who's watching. I don't find that very compelling at all. Another theory, and this one's rather strange, is that the angels are the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6. And these were the sons of God, the fallen angels who came and were with women and procreated and created the giants, the Nephilim. I don't think that's very compelling either. There's another model that I think is interesting here, another interpretation, and that is if you think back to Isaiah 6, verse 2, the Lord is surrounded by angels. And what are they doing in that moment of closeness to God and worship? They cover their faces. They cover themselves. So some theologians have looked at this and said, there's something about the holiness of God's presence. And so there's a sense of covering symbolically in the presence of the glory of God. I think that's kind of in the right direction, but I think this is probably the best. This fourth interpretive line here is that angels are participants in worship and guardians of what's going on here, the order. And so some theologians point to a passage in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the first century, that says this. Can I read it? It says that the angels of holiness are among your congregation. And so that is one of the earliest clues we have on how to interpret this. I find that to be the most compelling, that when we gather together, when Corinth gathered together, there are angels among us. 
And so there is something about the created order as we worship and pray and prophesy, as we are created to be male and female in our mutual interdependence. That is what we're exhibiting in our worship together. So again, this is all in view of the context of worship. Again, I am not resolving anything in this. I am raising some key fundamental aspects of this passage that I think. And if you think that you have it all figured out, we can go have coffee. (laughs) Again, the mystery of God's word. What was Paul saying to them in the first century? And what is God saying to us through this text in 2019? Again, humility and reverence before that. Before we take a minute and look at the Lord's Supper, I want you to, because I need to take a breath here, I want you to turn to the person on your right and say, you are created in God's image. Turn to the person on your left if there's someone there. You are created in God's image. So that really is what Paul, the the thrust of that passage is women and men coming together as those created in the image of God, being who God's created us to be in interdependence with one another. And now he's going to go on in the next verses and talk about the Lord's Supper. Now this is the central practice of the early church and of the church for the last 2,000 years. This is it, the key rite or ritual known as the Lord's Supper. I'll explain why. It's known as the Eucharist. Who can tell me what Eucharist means? The Thanksgiving, that's right. So in some circles, they call this the Holy Eucharist. In others, it's communion because we're communing with God, communing with one another. And along with baptism, this is one of the two key sacraments especially for Protestants, right? Two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So we're going to look at this text here, and then I'm going to make a few comments. Let's look at uh, 11, 17 through 22. Actually, no, I want to do, uh, let's skip to 23. Sorry, let's do 23 through 26. And this will be nice because it will set us up to have communion here in a minute. So Paul is talking about receiving and handing on the practices of the Lord's Supper. Because of time, we're not going to read 17 through 22. He's basically addressing divisions in the church. But here at 23, he's getting them to remember and proclaim. So Paul says this at verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. That is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, some comments here on this magnificent text about the Lord's Supper. This was established by Jesus. You read it in the Gospels, right? Luke 22 and Matthew 26. So this whole thing that we're going to do this morning and that the church has been doing for 2,000 years was established by Jesus 
at the Last Supper. And for Jesus, it was established in the Old Testament. It was established in the Passover meal. What's interesting, as we celebrate this, we're in continuity with all of that history. Sometimes this becomes for us kind of dislocated and removed from all of that history. This has a rich history with the people of God, the Jewish people, and then the the New Testament, the New Covenant people of God. But the beauty is we're not just celebrating the Passover. We're celebrating Christ who is the Passover. And so we do this in view of what he did on the night that he was betrayed. In the early church, this was something that they did about once per week. They gathered together. They would meet in homes. They would share a meal. And the meal would start with the breaking of bread. And then they would eat together, just like Ariella's group. They would feast together. They would eat. And at the end of the meal, they would have the cup of blessing. And they would have a common cup. They would drink wine. And all of this becomes a prophetic moment, a prophetic action declaring the gospel now that Christ has become our Passover. We talk about Acts 2.42 quite a bit. This is something that the church, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, what's the third one? The breaking of bread and prayer. This was something the church was deeply committed to. It nourished the church spiritually, and it also became a means of evangelism. And I want us to think about that this morning. As we do this, it actually proclaims the gospel. It proclaims the good news. So looking at this, I want to make a couple of comments here, and then we'll come to the table. At verses 23 through 26, Paul is giving us a meditation and declaration. So when we come this, he's received this from the Lord most likely. It wasn't that Jesus appeared to him and gave him this, but that Jesus' teaching came to him through someone else. Now, it may have been that he had a revelation about this, but most likely it was someone else passed it on to him and said, this is how Christ did the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. So it's a continuation of that. And as we do this, it is proclaiming what the Old Testament prophesied and what was fulfilled in Jesus. The broken bread proclaims what Isaiah 53, 12 says, that the suffering servant is broken for you, for me. It also proclaims that the cup of wine is the new covenant in his blood. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is so incredibly rich, the Lord's Supper the Lord's table for us. And so I want us to think about the breadth and the depth around that. Another thing that we often don't think of is that this has eschatological implications. That is, it preaches the end is coming. We do this how often? Until he comes. So every time we do this, it is an eschatological moment. We are reminded the king has come and the king is coming again. That is what we're doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Paul goes on to give other instruction here in 27 through 34. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to lay out a few things and let you go back and look at it. But there were problems in the Corinthian church. They were not examining themselves. They weren't discerning what was actually happening. You know what they were doing, friends? They were having food parties and excluding the poor. 
and it broke Paul's heart. Paul said, church, this is meant to be a common meal for all of you to come together in subgroups so they would meet all over the city of Corinth, usually probably 12 to 20 people at a time, and some of the rich Corinthians were excluding the poor people. And Paul said, that is not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for all of you to come together. Slave and free, men and women, Jew and Gentile, all of you come to the place. It's a level of the cross and it's level at the Lord's Supper. And Paul was actually calling them out. He said, some of you are coming and feasting. You're getting drunk. He says that. In the latter section, he says, that is not what the Lord's Supper is about. It's to care for the poor, to share the common meal together, and for all of you to rivet your attention on the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus. In verses 33 through 34, let's end with this, because oftentimes we just don't hear this section. Listen to what Paul says. Then we'll come to the table together. Verses 33 and 34, in light of what Paul's been talking to them about, celebrating, examining, discerning the body of Christ, he says this, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. So he's giving them very practical instruction about how to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in their homes. And it is, it's a little different for us because we do this on Sundays and it's not part of a meal. But I think Ariella's group and some of you may be practicing something that's more, it's closer to this Lord's Supper. Share a meal together and in that context, break bread, drink wine, drink grape juice together. Someone ask the elders to come forward. Let's get our stations set up. Elders that are serving communion this morning, if you will come.